This training is part of a governance series that Resolve have developed to prepare board members and leadership to be better equipped for the governance journey. This resource has been prepared as much as possible to be generic and useful across the wide range of not-for-profit enterprises across the social sector globally. Resolve is a specialist governance consulting firm that operates worldwide in the areas of building healthy governance and management practices in not-for-profit organisations. These training modules delivered by Resolve seek to improve governance practices and are presented in a conversation-style podcast format so they're accessible to board members and leaders wherever they find themselves. You might like to listen to these topics as a group and discuss them or listen to them on your own in your car or at home. Our hope is that in providing a flexible format, board members and leaders alike can engage with this material and that it can lead to better board governance. Welcome to this board training podcast. In this session, we'll explore the topic of board accountability. Not-for-profit organizations do not operate in a vacuum. They exist in the context of community. They operate as part of the community and make regular contact with the community that they work with. Not-for-profits contribute a great deal to society and community. Whereas governments contribute to the public sector and companies contribute to the private or corporate sector, not-for-profit organizations are often described as contributing to the community or social sector. Not-for-profits are connected to their specific community as well. This core community is focused around agreed core values, core purpose and vision. We'd contend that a board's accountability should relate to how it sees its responsibilities and role in relationship to itself, as well as how the board relates to the various communities that the not-for-profit interacts with. Let's talk some more about the place of not-for-profits and community. In several instances over the years, we've observed a not-for-profit that has lost connection to either its internal core community or to the community it serves, its connected community. Let me give you a couple of examples of what I'm talking about. First, let's look at the example of the not-for-profit hospital that was started last century as one of the first palliative care providers in the country. A group of Christian faith-based founders wanted to help people both physically and spiritually by providing services that eased the suffering and pain of patients through proactive pain management and spiritual care. The community of board, staff and volunteers in the early decades of this not-for-profit were drawn to join the hospital by this compelling vision of the founders to make a holistic difference in the lives of the dying. Soon after came the challenges of growth. The hospital was so successful and this new concept of palliative care was so attractive that the not-for-profit couldn't keep up with the demand when hiring staff and volunteers. The challenge quickly became one of maintaining a Christian community that would be able to serve both spiritual and physical needs of the patients. The core community needed to stay focused on the core values, core purpose and vision of the organisation. As time went by, more staff and volunteers were hired to join the core community. However, over time, the core community of board, staff and volunteers lost their proactive connection to core values and core purpose that were expressed from both a physical and spiritual perspective, and shifted to reflect a changed or even watered-down set of values and purposes by becoming focused predominantly and then solely on physical care. 
The spiritual care component was lost completely when Resolve were asked to review the organisation many years later. In this case, the failure to maintain an organisational community that was aligned with the core values, core purpose and vision of the organisation led invariably to a new, albeit unstated, set of core values, core purpose and vision. The core values and core purpose shifted and this resulted in a change in vision and mission. This phenomenon is known as mission drift, and it's impacted many not-for-profits that have not remained connected to their core foundational statements. In the second example, a large non-government school had experienced a large decrease in enrolments over a few years, and were really struggling to remain financially viable. The school was located in a major capital city. It was a high-fee school and catered traditionally for wealthy families that came from Protestant religious background and was also attractive to professional services families. Those involved typically in financial services, banking, and professions such as doctors and lawyers. What was interesting was that over the last two or three decades, the demographics in the city that that school was located had changed. With a large influx of immigration and an aging population, the community serviced by the school historically had changed to be very different. No longer was the predominant religion Protestant. Indeed, many new families practiced no religion or came from all kinds of faith backgrounds. And there were other changes too. The doctors and lawyers of 20 years ago had retired and were being replaced in the area by tech wizards, a bohemian artists community, and new emerging small business type industries. High-density housing, replacing more traditional, older house blocks. The school had failed to see the changes in the community it served over time, creating a disconnect with the connected community and threatening the very existence and relevance of the school to that community. As noted earlier, not-for-profit organisations don't operate as islands. They exist with connections to the wider connected communities of those they serve and interact with. And while not-for-profits interact with the communities they serve, they also are themselves a community in their own right. An active, healthy core community internally is critical to a healthy not-for-profit. The core community is connected by the underlying core purpose and core values of the organisation. But how does the board monitor this? How does an organisation become accountable to itself for sticking to its stated core values and core purpose? The answer relates to one of the most important roles of the board, the board's accountability to its moral owner community. Moral owners are similar to shareholders in a for-profit company, except that in a not-for-profit, they don't receive dividends or take any personal financial gain from their membership of the not-for-profit. They're often the voting members of a club, church, association, company or society operating the not-for-profit. Moral owners can also include in some organisation structures, major donors or supporters of the not-for-profit. Moral owners are the key ownership group that the board of the organisation are accountable to. Moral owners can usually be determined by looking at the constitutional documents of the organisation. Being accountable to the moral owners for most boards involves attendance and reporting at some form of annual meeting. At these meetings, often the financial report is presented, new directors elected, etc. 
The annual meeting of your not-for-profit is a great opportunity to also share as a board with the moral owners how the organisation has been pursuing its vision, as well as sharing longer-term plans for the future through strategic plan reporting and discussing how future planning is helping achieve the core purpose of the organisation over the long term. The annual meeting is also an excellent opportunity to reinforce the place of core values to the organisation through sharing stories of success and achievement throughout the year. We've talked about the core community of the not-for-profits and accountability to the moral owners. The connected community of your not-for-profits also needs to understand your core values, core purpose and vision clearly and simply so that they remain connected to these. If you don't keep the core values, core purpose and vision central and communicate these regularly to your connected community, there is a risk that you will start to drift and move out of step with your community's stated purpose, values and vision. Early warning signs of this happening are often seen in the feedback provided by the connected community during day-to-day -day operations of the organisation. They might be complaining that the vision is old-fashioned and not relevant anymore, or areas of conflict with members of the connected community might be observed to be increasing around matters related to values and purpose. As board members, you're accountable to the core community of moral owners for the alignment of the organisation with the stated core values and core purpose of the organisation. Your vision needs to stay connected to these, whilst also being relevant to the current generation you're serving in the connected community. What appears like discontent from the community may actually just be misunderstanding. It's critical that the board and management continually communicate in fresh and exciting ways the organization's direction, not isolated from, but in direct connection to the core values, core purpose and vision of the organization. For example, a faith-based Christian school started to hear regularly from an increasing number of families that they really wanted more of a focus on academics and less focus on the Christian aspects of the school program plus less focus on sports as well. The board in this school realised that the new parents were not being inducted into the school well, that they didn't understand the Christian education philosophy of educating the whole child that formed part of the core purpose of the school, which was commonly understood in the previous generations of families seeking to enrol children in the school. The board could have bowed to the pressure of the new families and changed the vision to satisfy the parents, but instead saw the warning signs of mission drift and developed better strategies to explain and get commitment from new parents to the whole-of-child Christian education focus of the school. This led to a review and overhaul of communications material, website and enrolment policies and processes to better connect new families to the core community of the school. Policies are supposed to help run organisations, but why do they either get written in reaction to an issue and then promptly forgotten, or they consume a board's agenda and end up weighing down an organisation in bureaucracy? I get it that policy is the tool that boards should use to govern well. I also understand that most boards are meeting between once a month and four times a year. So they need good policy that helps management lead with confidence in the day-to-day -day management of the organisation. Is that the only purpose of policy? I've sat on boards that try to tell management what to do when they write policy. What ends up happening is that policies get longer and longer as boards think of new scenarios that might happen and therefore need policy written to direct management. 
Fast forward a few years and these organisations will have amassed a huge number of very long policies filled with procedural detail, most of which is now out of date. Also, why is the board even writing policy about how the day-to-day of the not-for-profit operates? How is the board equipped to do this? They are volunteers. Surely there should be a difference between policy that the board writes about governance and policy that management writes and operates under. And if there are different types of policy writing for governance and management, how do these policies relate to each other? Or don't they? I haven't seen many boards that have been able to answer these questions effectively. As you've just heard, there's a lot of frustration and confusion around the topic of board policy. The most frequent questions we hear about board policy include, what is board policy? Is there such a thing as separate policies for governance and management? How do we write effective policy? Let's start with the question, what is board policy? Your not-for-profit board has three main roles. John Carver, author of the book Boards That Make a Difference, and the creator of the policy governance model, summarise these as 1. To ensure that the organisation achieves its core purpose and vision aligned with its core values. 2. To avoid unacceptable actions and situations, and three, to adopt suitable policies that are consistent with the roles and responsibilities of the board, given to them under the organisation's constitution, the contract with the CEO, and any other legal or statutory responsibility the board has. We discuss the role of the board to achieve purpose and vision in another podcast. However, it's important to note here that the strategic plan of the organisation is actually a policy outcome of the board and management as they work together, articulating mission direction to achieve the vision. The second point is an interesting one, to avoid unacceptable actions or situations. Under the policy governance model, John Carver points out that effective policy sets boundaries of acceptable action. This stands in contrast to the traditional way of writing policy, which is to try and tell management what to do. By taking the approach of setting boundaries of acceptable action in policy writing, a board is actually inviting management to be creative and take the initiative in developing mission through the strategic plan. But the board has not abrogated its responsibilities to management. By helpfully describing some boundaries that management need to operate within, the board assures itself through policy where the delegated authority to management ends. Let me illustrate using a familiar policy most not-for-profit board members have come across. That policy is the approval of the annual budget. I'd imagine right now a lot of you are wondering what I'm talking about. A budget's not a policy, but hear me out, it actually is. The annual budget, when approved by the board, is a policy document that provides to management a financial plan for the year, with boundaries of spending in different budget areas, as well as a set of approved assumptions and key performance indicators from which the budget operates and pursues. The board should require, by policy, that management come back to the board if they need to spend outside of this approved budget, or if any of the major assumptions are going to compromise the integrity of the budget. There is some variability here, with some boards approving, say, a 5% variance outside the budget, for example, before they require reporting back for approval. This is good board policy, because once approved, the budget provides the boundaries from which management can operate from. 
Under the policy governance model, the degree to which the board wants to stop writing policy is the point that management have the freedom to make decisions, guided by the strategic plan and other policies. So following this logic, the board should make sure that the budget, and other areas of policy for that matter, are written to a level of detail sufficient to give the board confidence to delegate further policy writing and implementation to management. When you write policy using boundaries, the length of policies drops significantly, as you're no longer trying to think of every possible situation and tell management what to do. It also solves the problem that volunteer board members are really not the best group to be writing operational policy. They're usually not equipped to be telling management how to do their job. They're not close enough to the day-to-day -day action. And this just ends up frustrating management if boards meddle in operational policy. The final role of the board in policy governance is to adopt suitable policies that are consistent with the roles and responsibilities of the board given to them under the organization's constitution, the contract with the CEO, and any other legal or statutory responsibility that the board has. Notice that this doesn't say write policies relating to the day-to-day -day operations of the organization. At the risk of laboring this point, operational policy should be left to management, Instead, the board should focus on writing governance policy. There are four categories of policy that the board should be concerned with. 1. Strategic policies. This is lived out in the strategic plan and is a core policy statement on direction. 2. CEO boundaries. This set of policies sets boundaries for management in terms of all activities that take place across broad operational categories. 3. Governance process. This set of policies determines the processes that the board will follow and use to govern itself, and to ensure it is accountable for its governance duties and processes. 4. Board and CEO relationship. These policies cover the important areas of how the CEO's authority is delegated and its use monitored, the CEO's role, and how the board will evaluate the CEO's performance. There is a real difference between board governance policy and management operational policy, as discussed earlier. In the Resolve Community Governance Framework, you'll read that the board is responsible for the why we exist, who has the authority and what we're doing strategically. Management has the responsibility of how we'll operate day to day. This is a useful reminder of how to determine whether a policy should be a governance policy or an operational policy or procedure. If the matter relates to how the organization is operating day to day, then the policy or procedure responsibility will rest with management. Management policy needs, however, to link to board policy. In all cases, there should be a broad governance policy to which the management policy relates. It's therefore helpful for the board to understand and monitor management policies and procedures in terms of how these are seeking to fulfill related board policy in a particular area. In our Board Processes podcast, we talked about thinking of policy as nested Russian or babushka dolls. The board is responsible for creating the biggest doll, setting the broadest policy parameters in an area of operations from the perspective of the CEO's boundaries in that area. Then when the board is happy to stop defining further detail in the organisational area, management takes over the delegated responsibility to write policy and procedure, which are like the smaller Russian dolls, to assist in implementing the board policy. The board's job is then reviewing management policy to make sure that it's consistent with board policy, 
and that management have used the delegated authority given to them thoroughly and to the satisfaction of the board when creating policy, procedure and processes that are being implemented. How do you find new board members? In a recent survey by Resolve of more than 400 not-for-profits, one of the top five governance issues was finding new board members. When you become a new board member, there should really be some form of induction process. So many volunteers end up on boards with little or no prior experience in governance. Plus, not-for-profit organisations always come with their own set of unique characteristics, processes, and also almost always a long list of acronyms that can confuse a new board member. Not only do most not-for-profits not do board member induction very well, most, from our experience, don't have well-developed plans around leadership change and refreshment of boards. In recent years, some not-for-profits have adopted fixed tenures for board members in their constitutions, with the aim of compulsory retiring board members after terms of generally between 9 and 12 years. This is usually expressed as serving a maximum of, say, three terms of three years each term following which the board member cannot stand for re-election to the board for at least 12 months. However, what we've also observed is that for every board that has adopted a fixed tenure for board members, there seems to be another board removing this requirement from their constitution, or modifying it, to allow for longer terms. In these cases, there are varying stated reasons for extending board member maximum tenure. Sometimes it relates to the timing of key leaders retiring, other times because the board wants to keep a particular skill set offered by an individual on the board, and sometimes just because no one can think of new directors in their own circle of influence, so the current board members just stay on and on and on. In all cases that we've seen, changes to constitutions to lengthen terms again have not resulted in active policy and strategy development for succession and transition of board members. The right balance of board member turnover helps to keep the organisation healthy. It's important to have a mix of board members, some with years of experience as well as newer members. This helps ensure that a large percentage of the board is not retiring from office at the same time, plus also allows for the retention of organisational memory carried by the more experienced board members. Board turnover is not something to be afraid of, but rather something to be embraced by the board. By developing policies and processes in this area, the board can make sure it's assessing its membership needs regularly and has in place strategies to source new and upcoming board members. These strategies might include reviewing the moral ownership member group for suitable board members, or using board committees as an opportunity for more people to be involved in the governance of the organisation, plus also providing a larger pool of people to draw board members from. In terms of changing board members, establishing an effective induction process is an essential board policy. It's important for the new board member to have a clear understanding of what's expected from them in the role, as well as to get a good understanding of the board's culture, policies and processes. A good induction process should start even before a new board member commences. A well-designed induction process that begins as early as possible will help new board members get up to speed more quickly which will build board member confidence so that they're more able to make valuable contributions to the board earlier than they otherwise would. An induction policy and checklist is a very helpful tool to work through, ensuring that each new board member is adequately prepared to fulfil their duties. 
Generally, the board chair and the CEO have duties in the induction of new board members, although another board member is sometimes appointed as a mentor to the new board member. This mentor can make contact immediately before each board meeting and immediately after for the purpose of helping the new board member ask questions about board papers and to debrief after the meeting around any questions of board process or areas of confusion. Assigning a board mentor to a new board member can be very effective and needs only to be in place for two or three meetings. You might also like to provide some information to prospective board members before they even join the board. This helps them be informed about the organisation and their governance responsibilities before making the important decision to join your board. Documents include a copy of your constitution, a copy of the annual financial statements, a copy of the board handbook and governance policies, and a copy of the latest strategic plan of the organisation. Once a new board member is appointed to the role, the following induction steps are typically undertaken. First, the chairman calls or meets the new director to discuss board process and to answer any questions the board member has about the material they've just been given. The chairman may also work through the board handbook or policies with the new board member to provide an overview of these. Next, provide the board member with some professional reading and broader information about the not-for-profit. This might include governance resources, a copy of Resolve's community governance book, prior annual reports and the like. The new board member should also be provided with the last two or three board minutes so that they can review these and understand, or ask questions about recurring items of business or current decisions being considered by the board. A prior briefing on this material avoids the board having to go over old ground in a full board meeting. And finally, the new board member can be provided with other information, such as board members' contact details, board portal access if the organisation uses an online portal, and copies of planning calendars and meeting dates. If a mentor is appointed for the new board member, they can meet over the phone or in person as needed over the first few meetings. So I find myself on a board as a new board member. And what's next? How do I know how to be a good board member? What professional development is reasonable for a board member to do? Surely, if people are donating their time to be a volunteer board member on a not-for-profit board, they can't be asked to also step up for governance training. I can remember going to a board governance seminar put on by a legal firm some time ago as a new board member. Wow, it was confusing, sometimes boring, and at times terrifying in terms of legal responsibilities. Not only were the concepts pretty foreign to me, but most of the training felt like a listing of all the wrong things board members do and the legal liabilities that can result. Surely there must be a better way to balance the legal responsibilities of being a board member with the other responsibilities and skills I need to receive training in. Like, how do I read a financial statement if I'm not an accountant? Or what reports should I be asking for from management? Wouldn't it be great if boards received professional development that was tailored more to the individual board members' needs? With advances in technology, now more than any other time, it's easier to find inexpensive and customised training in how to be a better board member. Increasingly, regulators are requiring board members of not-for-profits to undertake training to be equipped in governance. 
this is a key accountability area for the board. From books to read, conferences to attend, podcasts to listen to, and online and offline courses to take, there really is a good volume of professional development material available to board members and prospective board members. Professional development is important for board members, and the board should have a policy covering the professional development of its members. Professional development of the board needs to be a priority for organisational planning. Professional development of board members and the board as a whole enhances the effectiveness of each individual board member, as well as optimising the board's performance. Board members can assimilate governance professional development more when it happens in the context of their own board and organisation, rather than consuming general material. An environment like this can help them work through relative issues and promote ideas for future development. For this reason, we encourage boards to consider engaging in group professional development, where real-life situations for your not-for-profit can be incorporated. It's the board's responsibility to manage its board members' professional development needs, not management's. The board's continued learning is necessary to keep up to date, since governance practices and related issues are always changing. There are different approaches to professional development. Many opportunities are available to boards to take advantage of to enable the best results. Professional development can be made available through mentoring, presentations, courses, books, articles, podcasts, conferences, seminars, the works. There's both general governance material available as well as sector-specific training in many cases. Building a well-balanced composition of skill and character into your board ensures stability, commitment and a thorough knowledge of the organisation and its environment. Some boards have in place a board skills matrix. The board skills matrix lists each board member across the x-axis of the document and all desirable skills needed for board members down the y-axis. By using a process of self-assessment of each board member, gaps can be identified in both skills and other areas, like diversity in age range, sex or cultural background. The board skills matrix helps to identify where gaps in skill or competencies exist and need to be addressed. Where deficiencies can be identified in a board skill set comes the opportunity for identifying new board members that bring new skill areas to the board, or alternatively provide professional training to develop new skill areas for board members. For example, if a board is about to embark on a series of major building projects in the coming years, it might be a good strategy to find a board member with relevant building industry skills and experience, and also very useful to engage some specialist training for the whole board on building project management and governance. A succession plan for board members should also be formulated to replace skills and attributes that leave with retiring board members. This should be done with close consideration to each board member's term dates and specialist skills and knowledge. The board skills matrix, reviewed annually and at key times when there is board membership change, can be very helpful at identifying areas of expertise to source in new board members. Finishing well is what we all aspire to do, but sometimes it doesn't seem to happen that way. Whether we're talking about finishing well as we approach retirement age from our full-time working life, or finishing our term as a board member from the not-for-profit we've served faithfully as a board member for many years. You see, the problem that I've observed is that we tend to get connected to our positions, including our role on the board, and sometimes when it's time to move on, we don't recognise this and a few things can happen. 
Some scenarios Resolve has observed in its continuing work over the years include the board that just allows board members to stay on for as long as they like. There's no one actively asking the question, what does the board need in terms of board member skills, experience, and no sense that there needs to be renewal of any kind. The board that has members that invest a large part of their passion and life to the organisation, quite common to find in the not-for-profit sector. These board members often connect their identity to their role over time, so this makes it very hard to suggest they need to move off the board. The remunerated board. Some not-for-profits pay director's fees. As board members age, this additional income, even if token, becomes quite attractive and a reason to overstay their tenure as a board member. No one else is lining up to take my spot. In this board, the board members just stay on the board year after year because there's no alternative board members presented for appointment. Either because the board itself is not invested in board renewal or because of the small number of volunteers interested in governance in the organisation. The social loafing board. I love this term. But unfortunately, it describes a phenomenon where the board members identify their fellow board members almost as a surrogate family therefore never wanting to move off the board and lose these relationships and connectivity. When boards end up in any of the above situations, how do you break the cycle and start to make changes where succession planning can take place? And what about the management leadership succession planning? I know most organisations might have some form of emergency succession plan if the CEO gets hit by the proverbial bus, but at other times, can the board be prepared for a change in leadership on the operational side of the organisation? Can you actually prepare in advance for leadership transition? The organisation's continuity and sustainability depends on good succession planning for both board and management. This is especially true for key roles on the board and in management, the chairman and CEO being two such key roles. The chairman of the board is usually elected for a term, in the same way that board members are elected or appointed to the board. In some not-for-profits, the chairman is elected annually after the annual moral owners meeting by the rest of the board. In others, the position is directly appointed or elected by the moral owner group. Whichever way your chairman's elected, your board has a responsibility to have an understanding of the intentions of the chairman in terms of their expected leadership term and how the board will transition to a new chairman when the time comes. This process might be determined for the organisation by the constitution, but if not, board policy in this area should be developed to cover leadership transition planning to ensure a smooth handover in governance leadership. The CEO or executive of an organisation acts as the point of communication between the board and the organisation's operations staff. Selecting the leader or CEO is one of the most important jobs for a board, since this appointment represents a key strategy in achieving the organisation's vision. This is why the transition to new leadership is such an important activity of a board. For a successful transition to a new CEO or executive leadership, the board's expectations should formulate the basis of a written leadership transition plan. The plan should be documented and communicated clearly to the appropriate parties, including the board, the CEO and executive. In some circumstances, it might also be appropriate to include the moral owner group in communicating the plan. A leadership transition plan is considered important policy for both governance and management leadership roles. Let me explain in more detail what this leadership transition plan contains. 
The Leadership Transition Plan should first provide an overview of its purpose. It should outline the goals, assumptions, risks and action items to be performed by each of the parties to the plan. These will be different for each leadership position that's in transition. The expectations for the transition to new leadership should address the current leader's role, responsibilities and conduct as they fulfil the term of their leadership. The transition plan should also include agreement clauses around common communication of important information and changes to authority if these are occurring during the transition period. The plan needs to be as explicit as possible to maximise communication, understanding and accountability. A time frame for the leadership transition process should also be outlined in the plan, including the announcement that the current leader is concluding their service to each stakeholder. The timing for each stakeholder will be different. The commencement of the recruitment or replacement process. The announcement of the successful applicant. And then the handover to the new leader. Most organisations don't have in place leadership transition plans written in a proactive sense. Reactive plans do exist and may be familiar to many board members as emergency succession plans or succession plans. Most organisations are more familiar with these. During unforeseen circumstances, these plans outline the what, how and who has responsibilities and actions for an emergency but temporary succession, often triggered because of an accident or incapacitation of the leader. The final area of board accountability to reflect on is board performance appraisals. Everywhere else in my working career, I've found some form of appraisal process goes on as a staff member, whether it's been a formal staff review each year or an informal call to the boss's office for a quiet chat. So why is it when I think of all the boards that I've been involved with and served on, not once was there ever a sense of accountability for our performance to another group or individual? I guess the closest thing to a board appraisal I've experienced is when the board had to present a big fraud in the organisation to the annual meeting of moral owners. The moral owner members were not happy and let us know clearly that they were disappointed in the board for letting the fraud go undetected for so long. The board, of course, pointed to the external auditor and the external auditor pointed to management and the board. An unsatisfying stalemate. Can boards really be accountable for whether they're doing a good job? Let's face it, the moral owners don't know what goes on in the boardroom. Some boards issue their minutes to the moral owners or stakeholders, but these are usually watered down and well-controlled summaries of decisions. There's not much to gain from reviewing these to determine if a board is healthy and performing well. Some have argued that the success of the board and CEO should be measured in terms of success of meeting the strategic plan of the organisation, or through financial growth, or meeting key performance targets for organisational impact, growth and achievement. There can be many factors that impact organisational success, and our experience is that there's lots of dysfunctional boards operating very successful not-for-profits. So what's the answer for assessing the performance of a board? Board performance appraisal is a critical part of building board accountability. Both appraisal of the board as a whole, but also appraisal of individual board members is needed. This will help highlight areas for professional development needs for the board as a whole and individual board members. For board members with special roles like chairman or secretary, board appraisals can also provide great feedback on areas to improve their roles as they seek to support the work of the board. 
Using an online survey and interviews, the board can self-assess their performance annually and invite an external consultant to assess the board once in, say, every three to five years in order to gain feedback on their performance and, more importantly, identify areas of improvement to work on. When looking at board performance, Resolve recommends boards look at the following aspects of board performance. 1. Leadership and delivering direction to the organisation through a strategic plan. 2. Role clarity and distinction from management's role. 3. Teamwork and the use of board time, committees and management's assistance to the board in doing its job. 4. Accountability and compliance to the board's own policies. 5. Decision-making effectiveness. 6. Communication and connection to the moral owners and organisational community. 7. Board operations generally, like meeting style, planning and board paper quality. 8. Expectations and satisfaction of board members with their opportunity to contribute to the board. 9. Expectations and satisfaction with the chairman in the exercise of their role. 10. The board's relationship with the CEO or executive. In addition to more formal appraisal processes for the board, Resolve also recommends that not-for-profits routinely ask board members to provide responses to the following four questions immediately following a board meeting. This feedback is usually provided to the chairman or secretary, and the summaries provide current and concise feedback about how meetings are being held and their general effectiveness. 1. These things are going well. Keep doing these things at board meetings. 2. I would like to do more. Which parts of the board meeting would you like to spend more time doing? 3. Do less of or stop doing. Which things don't you think were helpful or useful? 4. Start doing or trying this. What new things should we be doing to stretch our board to improve our processes? Reflecting on this form of feedback can provide the chairman of the board with valuable ideas and improves the engagement of other board members in the board's processes so that all of the board are actively involved in the process of continuous improvement. This brings us to the end of this Governance Ideas presentation. For more information on governance, management, leadership or finance ideas, visit us at resolve.consulting.